This interview is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. In Practice is an independent publisher and all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of In Practice. Ownership of ADPMA has changed recently, what that means for the organization. Yeah, we can. Rick, David, why don't you guys kind of provide your insight uh, relative to, you know, the change in ownership from uh, the private partners to MG and, and what you guys see. Mm-hmm. Kick that off. Yeah, I would say that, that from my perspective, that looking back, uh, the three of us, when we started the company, uh, we, we kind of grew it in a bubble. I would say that, that, that we grew with our, our, you know, self, self looking at perspective, hindsight being what it is, that we had a very limited view of the market. Uh, we knew where our strengths were, you know, where our, in our engineering and manufacturing and quality, uh, you know, we didn't always realize our weak where our weaknesses were, and but that's been exposed since the transition of the company, right? And so since MG bought us and Yusuf's come on board, it's it's become really apparent that uh, that we had a very narrow view of the things that we were doing and the, the things we were engineering was just opportunities. They were just opportunities for us. They were interesting. Uh, we did them. We never really saw the, the value of them, I don't I would say. And that's what's been exposed is that that one, you have to know your market, which we didn't. And you have you have to be able to go out and capture it, which we also didn't do that either. All right. And so where we thought we were doing a good job of know selling to the world it's become really evident to me that that we were really missing a lot of things and the ability to go out and capture market share out in the world was right in front of us but we we're just singularly focused on manufacturing engineering quality and we didn't have you know we didn't have smart business people here to focus us in the aftermarket and actually selling our products we were doing Right, like we we were able to feed our families. We're able to, you know, have self fulfillment mm-hmm. and accomplishment and achieving, you know, engineering things that I look back on, realize they were probably fairly difficult. Yeah, you know, but that's where we lived. We lived in, you know, we weren't making made enough money to grow the company slow made enough money to make payroll, made enough money to, to do some things. Uh, but it was really about, we did interesting things. That's really what kept us going. It's what kept the three of us together. We were doing what we deemed is, is cool and interesting things, right? It was an enjoyable way of life, yeah. right? And what we found out since then is that, you know, you, that also has a great value out in the world. So that's been my my biggest two-year hindsight looking where we've been and, and where we've come in the last two years since the purchase. Right. But to go along with that, we were, you know, uh, 
customers would bring us programs and we got excited about $5,000, $10,000 or whatever. And so we just focused on that. And like David said, you know, we had limited resources. So with limited resources, you could only do so much. And uh, we don't have those limited resources now. The new owners, Yusuf, I mean, they're always asking us, what can we do for you guys? What do you need to get to this, you know, goal that we're trying to get to? So uh, I agree with David. We were just in this box. We lived in that box. And I'm not saying we didn't uh, go outside the box occasionally, but with limited resources, you can only do so much. So that's kind of right. Well, I mean, we can take bigger risks now. We are. Yes. And, you know, the growth trajectory has changed a lot. But, you know, I have to just give it to you guys. The, the foundational elements were all there. It's really important. It was, like you said, you weren't going out to get bank loans. You weren't doing, you know, crazy finance stuff. You weren't taking that crazy high risk, right? Now you marry the two together. You get finance people you get you know uh business management people together with a very strong quality and technical and operations team now we start to create something that you know can further utilize our existing portfolio and keep growing the portfolio with new solutions for customers that exactly. other people aren't getting to exactly. today it's not only increasing our uh, sales and our bandwidth throughout the world, but it's bringing uh, larger opportunities into us for future sales. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, yeah, we had some big hits, but we're getting bigger hits now than yeah. we used to. Yeah. Right. And we got to go back to some of those big hits you had before. Exactly. Because it, it was a big hit, but it was a limited number of partners. Now you look at today, the fleet. Yeah. What is applicable to that fleet's now global. Now you can go back to that. So what we group. thought was stagnated is not stagnated anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, we got to maybe have a, a homes for some of this stuff. Right. Right. Globally. Right. And now we have a different reach. So yeah. Oh, it's, it's 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 exciting when you think about ADPMA's future. You know, having the right owners, having the right you know philosophy on the business, having the right support it just it's it's, it's it's a really exciting time for ADPMA for sure especially when you have the engineered products testing computation pma is a hard sale much harder than you know by license identicality people trust boeing people trust airbus they think everybody else checked all the boxes whereas with ours there can be questions right and, and having the technical team and the sales team, you know, aligned so that those questions be answered quickly, uh, fully is an important thing. And, and that's, that's why it makes the unique model. Yeah. Let, let's take a step back then, because, let, you know, so if you've got deep engineering talent internally, you, 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 you know, you PMA apart, you have this part and now what you do, right? How do you sell it? Can you just run through? So, the, the different channels that you've, you're exploring now, now you've got new ownership and how you actually commercialize the parts. You know, obviously one of those which you've been talking about is via distributors like Seal Dynamics or Sadair or Aviol. Can, can you describe how you're approaching the different channels today? Yeah, yeah, good point. 
So it's, it's still a lot of the same channels, but it, it, there's a nuance of, in today's world, who's putting the part on the plane, right? So the MRO shops, the airlines, who's putting the part on the plane? So they're, you know, ultimately most everything has to be approved by the airline, but there's these chains that we've got to look into. So um, it, it's really not a diff. There aren't different channels available to different companies in aerospace. There's a very limited number of channels because of the high regulation, because of the uh, uh, high level of, um, uh, yeah, really the high level of regulation. So what, what happens truly is we've, change our behavior to make it simpler for us to help those people get through the approval. We've changed our behavior to make it simpler for whoever needs to make the approval in the chain to be able to make that approval, right? So it's what David was saying, not just having a strong technical team, but having a sales team aligned with that strong technical team that can get the answers out fast, mm -hmm. right? What what do they, what do they say when you bring a PMA? Part? I mean, we we've uh, moved up the list a lot of times because our PMAs, the way we've done the analysis now, are providing a value or savings that might be higher than one of our competitors. So they'll move it up in their approval cycle. We if it's easy for them, if they have all the documentation or, or know that. You know, we have the answers for any of the questions that may come up. You know, if there was a service bulletin, if there was a, what's that thing called? When, uh, uh, you know, there was a, a issue in, in flight or what have you. Uh, uh, service difficulty. Service reports. difficulty reports or airworthiness directive that was in that system. Our technical team has already kind of discussed that, included it in our development cycle so that we can answer all those questions and make it easier for them to, you know, uh, quickly approve the part. So there aren't many different channels. Mm -hmm. It's really how does the company enable the channel partners to get to yes. It, it, so you mean the end user? Who's the end user? The end user is always the airline. So at the end of the day, when you think about aerospace, the real parts supplying to aircraft it's the person that needs that asset to move people around the world. Everybody else in the middle is a service supplier, right? It's the, you know, so we're, we've been but more specifically focused. It's, it's what, it's the one, it's the one person, it's the guy in the MRO shop at Lufthansa or at Delta. That, that's, is that, that's the end user you mean, right? Yeah. yeah. To, yes. In, in terms of when we're, when we're doing transactionally, right? Mm. But, but holistically, the end users are only the aircraft, you know, operators. So it's the Deltas, Air France's, Turkish, uh, sure. all yeah. those people, because they just need that aircraft to be available to fly people around the world. But, so, you know, walking through that process then just more at a high level. So, you know, you've got this part, you want to get it into the MRO shops owned by the big airlines. What's typically the biggest challenge to get the airline to convert from the OEM part to a PMA? The biggest challenge is the amount of work that it takes to get it done, right? So the OEM is the easy button. It's in the manual. 
all the instructions are there. Mm. All the information is there. The cage code of the OEM is on the part that they're removing. So every piece of information makes it simple for them to just go back to the OEM and get that part, right? So so the amount of work where they've got to change their manuals within the airline system, change the coding within that system in order to procure from us, that, that's a huge level of inertia. So that's why, you know, being mindful about what parts you are going to consider for PMA and what parts you are not going to consider for PMA, it, it becomes clear, you know, there's a, there's a reason, right? So it's a lot of work for the salespeople to get the part into them, for them to look at. Once you've got them listening to you about the part and they say, yeah, we're going to look at it. Now you got the, we have to submit uh, packages or whatever, or whatever they need. Now their engineering group has to approve that part before it even goes further. So there's several steps, but it's a lot of work by several people mm -hmm. trying to get that part to the end. Yeah. All right. Well, I would add that, that in order to sell something to somebody, it has to be valuable to them. Yes. Right. And so ADPMA historically, the only value we, we concentrated on was saving sales dollars. But as of late, we also save, we add value to the product by being available, having product available uh, due to current supply chains around the world. The fact that we have parts on the shelf is value added to our customer. Yeah. The other one is that if we can keep our part on wing longer, the part is more valuable to them. Right. And so we've recently been selling parts. Like we're not saving them dollars on parts. We're saving them by uh, designing parts that stay on the wing longer wow. and last longer. And we have them on the shelf ready to deliver for right. not 180 days. You can't call us. We don't say, well, we'll have it in 180 days, which is what a lot of people say. Right. right. And they need to turn that asset out of the shop to keep that plane flying. Right. Right. And so that 180 days is, you know, the, not having to wait 180 days is more valuable than anything else because not having that asset, and especially on a larger airframe like the 777, 787, A350, you know, where they're, international global travel, having an asset that's not available costs a lot of money to the airline, right? So, mm -hmm. so, they, so. But that's a misconception as well, right? Yeah. Yusuf, there's, there's a misconception there as well in the industry, well, from outsiders looking in or mainly investors is that, you know, PMAs are half price of, of, of the OEM product, you know, and, 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 and they're cheaper and they're aimed to save dollars. But what you guys are saying actually is that the parts are that much better and the availability is that much higher that you can actually sell it at least closer to the OEM price than what people may believe. Yes, yes, that's a valid point. That's what we're currently doing. Yeah, yeah. And that's been a change since ownership. That's been a drastic, from our perspective, that's been around here for a while. That's been a drastic change in perception of how you create value. Mm. Well, and just back to the point on selling to airlines or you know that the process i mean historically you know hiker always released their i think they call it like the alternative parts program which is their relationships they used to have with the airlines you know ba and 
uh, Delta and uh, Canada, for example. You know, are you guys doing a similar thing to that? Are they, are they exclusive relationships that, that Heiko were doing? Or how does that work? Once you sign with an airline, does it mean that they're you're exclusive on that certain part? Or are these just kind of one-off relationships that they have with airlines? It's a mix. So we have, you know, what I won't call it exclusive. I'll say it's like a prime relationship, right? So we're acting in a little bit of a different manner in terms of, uh, yeah, we're the prime, we're exclusive. So as long as we're meeting our side of the bargain of our parts are available, we don't have any quality escapes or quality issues, they're buying from us, right? But we're but we're not necessarily, uh, you know, tied in for five years with this particular airline. There are some air, airline partners where we'll have multiple years, but every partner, what we're doing is we're pushing for that prime relationship. And, and as uh, Rick described, after they went through all that hard stuff of their engineers reviewing this thing, so they spent all this money to approve us, it only makes sense that, we're prime because that's the only way they're going to, you know, capture that value that we just created. Right. So now instead of going into uh, overhaul twice a year, they go into overhaul once a year. They're capturing that by having us as the prime supplier, having our components as that prime supplier. It doesn't necessarily mean we've got to tie them up in an LTA relationship for five years because if we're delivering and we're actually providing that value, they're incentivized to keep us there forever. Hmm. How are the OEMs so, reacting to you to you guys when like what, what can they? I know we mentioned last time how I think it was Pratt to decrease the price to the, the price that you, of your PMA and one of your first ones and and, and kind of stop that short. So you know, how are you guys structuring or trying to prevent any onslaught from the OEMs? Yeah. So right now, um, you know, it's it's really about that value proposition and that prime piece where, you know, they know that whether the OEM changes the individual component acquisition price by any percentage, if the reliability is half of ours and they got to go into the shop twice a year versus going into the shop once a year with ours, it doesn't matter. OEM can't, you know, responding right. with price war doesn't work anymore, mm-hmm. right? We haven't seen any OEMs respond technically to us because, you know, you got to think about aerospace from this perspective. Most of the aircraft you're flying on were designed 30, 40, 50 years ago, right? And so manufacturing technology 30, 40, 50 years ago is not the same as today, right? So let's take a, 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 a realistic example. A uh, housing that's used in some kind of module, whether it's a uh, uh, landing gear actuator module or whatever. Well, in the past, that housing had to come from a casting house, go through all these you know, multiple processes, go to multiple vendors sometimes. And there is a legacy supply chain and a legacy cost to keeping that supply chain around that just has to happen. 
Well, Rick recently would go and find a parking and he'd have it machined out of a billet plate with a five axis machining company, right? Mm -hmm. Well, those types of machines didn't exist back then. So, so today we're making a part that we've already got a differential that you can't overcome unless the OEMs really willing to redesign. And this is one question I had before, which, you know, to me, the, from, from first principles, it's a no brainer to have PMAs, right? Like you said, you're using new technology, new, new materials, new engineering processes, et cetera. What is the biggest barrier for this industry or, you know, percentage of PMA parts on a platform? Like, why is this not just 10 times the amount? Like, what is really the, the, the potential bottleneck or limiting? Like, what's the hurt, big hurdle here for PMAs as yeah. a whole? Well, at MARPA, remember the, uh, I don't remember the acronym, MARPA, what is it again? The uh, it, MARPA is a, a PMA lobbying group in Washington, D.C. and in Europe as well, right? And so we were at the uh, last MARPA event, uh, I want to say in November out in San Diego. And we're having that, literally that discussion. The, the real issue, uh, Will, is the marketing the OEMs are doing, right? So there's a perception from years ago that, you know, one, P, there, you know, the many failed stories of a bad PMA, you know, going horribly bad, wrong. Someone didn't fully understand the system requirements or what have you, and it caused a failure or a loss of an aircraft or a accident or something, right? And so this horror story, well, they, the OEMs walk around with bags to the airline, to the MRO shops, and continue to uh, uh, push that narrative. What what's happening, and that's why uh, uh, an organization like MARPA exists. What's happening now? Once you can get to the engineers, and you can get to the uh, fleet engineers and the fleet management and that type of thing, what's happening is we're debunking the myth. So there was a myth of PMAs are inferior. PMAs are half the price of OEMs, and so therefore PMAs are inferior because they're half the price of OEMs. So all that whole narrative is why we, we aren't there. And I, I think the, the you know, go forward opportunity is the more success that companies like ADPMA and Heiko and Jet Parts and, and, and that ecosystem has, the more as a whole, we are debunking the myth. People see our parts and they sit the OEM next to ours and it's, it's tangibly, clearly different in terms of the quality. And, and I mean, they get shocked, right, from an engineering perspective all the time. They're like, oh, my, how did you make something like this? And why is this OEM thing so? Well, I'm going back 20-some years. I went to one of the first MARPA meetings. And to go along with this myth that we're talking about, I was sitting next to two engineers and purchasing people at this first meeting. And as I was sitting there, I could overhear them talking. And there's a myth out there because they were they were they were saying, well, you know, they were talking down the PMA process. I think they were sitting there just to understand uh, who's there and listening and stuff like that. 
but I would hear them say that a PMA house doesn't go through the testing. They do. They don't do this what we did and stuff like that. Well, that's all a myth. We got to do the same testing. We got to do everything. You know, we got to be satisfied, but then we got to satisfy the FAA and then the FAA has to be satisfied. So there, there is, a, you know, there's similar processes, but there's myths out there that we just reverse engineer. We don't do any of the testing or any of that stuff. Yeah. And a lot of people believe that back in. Yeah. Back in. I don't know how many believe it today, but I'm just saying back in the day, that's the what that's what they believed in. Yeah. Well, here's a good one on the reverse for that mythology. Remember when I came here? You know, ADPMA's philosophy was to just, you know, you got to pass the test. You got to pass the test. You got to get it done. You guys have no idea that the OEMs, 85% of the time, ask for a waiver yep. from the regulators of the requirement. So the <laughs> OEM is the one that actually didn't meet the real requirement. The PMA houses have no insight to that. And so they were so surprised when I said, well, why don't you, you say you're done now? And they're like, no, we're not done. I'm like, but you could be done. They're like, what do you mean? Yeah, we didn't realize you could ask for a waiver <laughs> for a requirement. Like, in our engineering brains, it's a checklist of requirements. We're going to fill out the checklist. We're going to complete the task. But the OEMs don't operate that way. You know, if they come across a problem during testing, they just go back and ask for a waiver. Yeah. You know, I know you wanted 4,000 PSI, but we only can get it to 3,500 PSI. Is that okay? And the OEMs say, yes, that's good. They'll do their analysis and say, that's good. Yeah, right. But the manuals all say that you got to go to 4,000. Right. So now someone else designing that didn't know this waiver existed, they're trying to complete Mission Impossible. And most of the times you guys completed Mission right. Impossible. So this is why we can, why our parts can last longer is because we actually used modern technology and, and modern thinking and figured out a way to make the thing actually pass the test. Right. You it know, makes I, no I sense. Yasa, yeah. <laughs> It, it really doesn't. So you you hit on a very valid point, but that's the real challenge, right? And that, you know, well, uh, debunking mythology. Um, one other thing that comes up often in my research is about the leasing companies, and that uh, maybe this comes from the OEMs as well. That having PMAs on a, on a, on a plane actually reduces the res residual value of a of, of a of an aircraft, and therefore the leasing companies advise. The airlines not to use that. You know, what's your thoughts around around that? That's changing too. That's changing too. So I have a little bit of thought around that. Is that as a late? So most of the parts that we do, they're replaceable parts, and so you could put our part on a leased engine, and when it's done with its cycle, you could put an OEM part back on it, and you're back right where you started from. So you're not decreasing the value of the leased asset. It's an expendable item anyways. It's being replaced on some regular schedule. Right. So it's no big deal. If, if that's an issue for you, it's no big deal to save all this money on maintenance. And then when you get to the end, buy the OEM part then and put it back on. And now you, you're right back where you started. Right. You can sell that asset and show the list that you got all OEM this time. But in the operating life while you were actually operating the aircraft using our components saved you money on you know labor time saved you money on acquisition potentially and saved you money on you know the fact that it was more reliable removals right and so yeah so so they're starting to 
they're starting to, you know, really the challenges of the pandemic, you know, uh, global travel just tanking and, you know, airlines and, and everybody in the aerospace industry having to think differently about how do they conserve cash? How do they spend more reasonably? How do they maintain their profits? This made them take a second look at PMAs and, and now that mythology, you know, not just us, not just ADPMA, but the whole, you know, PMA ecosystem, you know, and again, the big players, you know, PMA wouldn't exist without Heiko, right? With the big fight they did with GE uh, on, on the uh, GE engines, right? And, and getting the Congress and the FAA to pass the regs to say, no, a PMA and an OEM are, are equal, right? So it's all of us making progress that it's going to take to debunk the myth, right? So that's why we don't like bad PMA companies. You mentioned bad PMA companies. What, what makes a great PMA company? How do you define great PMA business? Well, you know, I just think that, in, you know, it's got to go back to the engineering excellence, the quality, mm-hmm. the manufacturing, so that you're not doing something that is, you know, and following the FAA regs, right, to the letter, not playing games, not, you know, uh, uh, falling outside of the AS9100, you know, certification. So that's what makes good PMA companies. And I think for the most part, you know, if you're not a good PMA company, the market will push you out. The market will get rid of you, right? So those businesses don't stay in business, right? Because if you have an escape or you have some other issue, it's going to cost you enough that it shuts you down, right? And the FAA is rigorous about going into places like what is called the MITO, right? Mm -hmm. The manufacturing side of the FAA will go and shut people down if they're not right. And so that's kind of what I mean is that companies that are trying to and that's why we work together with other PMA companies in MARPA, trying to debunk the myth, trying to, you know, have a clear record of, you know, proven performance at the end of the day, right? And so as you have more and more PMAs in more and more systems on aircraft performing and having a proven record of performance, it helps us all, you know, uh, go up against the giant OEM Monopoly. I would say that generically, all PMA companies start with what they know really well, right? Everybody starts with what you know best, right? That's how they all got created because they really know something really well. And what's made the larger PMA companies successful is the ability to grow the size of the product lines that you can delve into. it's really about do you add value or not? And if you're not adding value, you know, the market is going to push you out of the way. If you're doing things that are outside of the regulations, the FAA is there to shut those types of things down and make sure that it's, it's, it's not able to get to the field. So I guess when you think about it, those are things that, that uh, we've got to make sure we're pushing to help debunk the myth of uh, PMA companies not being as rigorous, PMA companies not being as uh, uh, capable of 
OEMs. It, it, it just couldn't exist if that, if that were true. I mean, it seems very difficult to grow and scale a PMA company, right? Because either you, like you said, you start, you start where you know in one specific area of engineering or part that you're really competent in. You, know, you guys have a very broad portfolio, which you seem to have developed mainly in house, which is kind of unique. Whereas the likes of Heiko seem to buy all, buy all their PMA, you know, yeah. stuff it, you know. So how do you, you know, how do you, how do you continue to how do you think about continuing to broaden your portfolio, develop internally? Is that even possible, or do you have to go and acquire the new PMA IP? It, it's a go ahead, do both. It's a mix, right? It's a mix. I think yeah. it's a, both. You can you yeah. can pick up PMAs, but we're always trying to expand our bandwidth uh, and develop parts. Of, yeah, yeah. It's really a philosophical question because it's it's somebody made it you know, 30 years ago and it functions and works, like, can you make it today and make it better? Yeah. It's a philosophical question is the answer is yes. Yeah. Right. That we just, in our core, we believe that from the beginning. Right. Mm -hmm. And so as a new opportunity comes up that we probably should have said some notes of some things we did. Right. And so that's still a potential, but that's what allowed us to grow. And it was a core, it was a core belief, belief among the three of us that, if somebody made it, we can make it, right? Yeah, the exit sign where it says exit on the plane. There's a little lady making that, but she's captured that market, and that's 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 what she does for a living, right? Right. But 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 in aerospace, Boeing's and Airbus rarely talk about those small businesses, those independent businesses that are part of their ecosystem. The only thing that they spend most of their time on is Collins and Safran and you know, Honeywell and all the big stuff. So, so what, you know, that, that is a, like you said, a philosophical thing that we've been able to grow because we partner with people. We actually spend the time to go back and find out where does this true, who's the person truly making a value versus assuming it based on a bunch of prints and specifications and all that. We get behind all that detail and, find the real human beings that are mm. doing the work that's necessary to make these products available. Well, uh, back to the point about commercializing this. So, you know, you, you've got the PMAs, the portfolio PMAs. We've spoken about selling direct to the airlines and the challenges. One of the other channels obviously is via the distribution layer, Satya, AVO, Seal Dynamics. Obviously, Seal is owned by Heiko. Heiko. Yeah, yeah that's how, fine. How do you guys that's feel about problem. about that? Right. How do you how do you feel about selling via distribution? You know, does it make sense to own a distributor? Obviously, Heiko probably put their PMAs front and center at Silk Dynamics. I can imagine. How do you, how do you find? How yeah. do you think about that? Yeah, it's a necessary part of the business, but for us, the hard part of the sale, we're going to have to do that up front. Once we have captured probably a certain amount of volume that's when a distributor is going to make sense for you know most businesses right it's that you're getting help with your working capital somebody's holding the inventory that today we may be holding and that mm -hmm. helps us reach more customers have higher faster terms but that first sale the distributor isn't making a sale that's why they're kind of 
called the distributor, right? So they're doing like a 3PL, like you see yeah. in other industries, third-party logistics, all that other stuff. Truly in aerospace, that's the way distributors in aerospace worked all the time, right? So you have you to know, go airline first. Process. Correct. We had to make the sale to the end user to right. say, yes, this is approved to be, be built, built volume. By, right. Exactly. In my yeah. fleet. And so now all these distributors are doing is helping us move that product near to the end customer. So, so it's like you think about the three PL on, you know, I bake cookies at home, and now other more people can get my cookies because I'm using this, you know, mm. channel but you, that. But you have to go to the airline first, like you said. You have to go to the airline, get the volume, get on the ship set, and then increase that over time. And then obviously selling via seal or avia would make more sense because more end users are aware of your product. And you've got that pull. They're pulling, they're pulling your product effectively through the distribution channel. Exactly, exactly. So, so when you think about distribution in aerospace, and then I know you've done some uh, reviews with a couple of distribution companies, but the biggest piece of that is their distribution margin is about them keeping stock that aligns with the global demand sure. yeah. and being able to help Sorry. execute. It gets back yeah. to what David talked about earlier of if you go to the OEM and they tell you 180 days, that's why having a distribution partner is important. And that's why you pay that distribution margin is because the distributor is cutting that 180 day from, you know, zero day order placed to now 60 days, 30 days, 45 days, because I have a certain amount of stock on hand, right? Is that, is that common when you have a PMA versus yeah. a PMA though? Is that, is that like, why would you, would you PMA a PMA? Yeah. Well, no, we didn't, we didn't PMA a PMA. You can't PMA a PMA. That's one thing in the rig you can't do. So it just happened that we both developed product against the OEM's right. product. And for whatever reason, you know, our product may have a, a, a longer on life than the one they develop mm. and, and they may buy that, you know, or they may have decided that they're shutting that line down because, you know, it costs a certain amount of money. And so they'll buy from us and they're spending their money on other programs. Right. And so mm. we've seen it across the marketplace as the big PMA companies like Wayncore bought like Soundair and Fortner and then uh, Heiko bought a number of what used to be customers of ADPMA, they continued to be customers of ADPMA, right? It didn't matter that the ownership changed, right? So it's, it's great that Heiko has a, you know, decentralized management type philosophy where they let each P&L be responsible for generating its profit as an individual PL versus some mandate or dictate to right. say you must use our own stuff inside, right? So, so this is it's, it's wise the way they run their businesses. Number one, but number two, yeah, it's that's not uncommon at all, and and, and we're perfectly happy working with them. You know, right. uh, we've worked with them on other programs, and well, you know. Being a part of MARPA together, sitting on committees together, right. helping push this advantage. So it it's 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 a little bit less cutthroat than some of the OEM side, where you know you would have like 
the Raytheon go up against Honeywell. It's a winner takes all thing of, okay, are you going to be on the Boeing 787 mm. environmental control system? Well, which company wins it, right? For us, it's a little bit different than that. No one has unlimited capital. No one has unlimited engineers. Everybody, you know, back to what David said, you do what you're good at and everybody's doing a piece of that. And together, all of us are going up against the big monopolies. And so given your engineering talent, you know, can you just produce o- you know, battle for OEM, direct OEM business? Or you know, how do you think about the attractiveness of OEM versus PMA? There's a lot of inertia. There's a lot of bureaucracy. And small companies, it's really hard to work with an OE efficiently, right? So what I would say is to that question, Will, is um, it's really about the tier we participate in, right? Where do we participate in the overall OEM ecosystem? So there's probably a, a, a space between you know, tier three, tier four, where we're supplying components to a a subcomponent or explain components into a system as individual components where that makes sense, right? But to take on like a system, there's a lot of, you know, uh, just program coordinators and people that are just sitting there just pushing paper around and making meeting memos that is not part of the DNA of ADPMA in terms of being lean and, you know, you know, people understanding that what value they're adding, right? So, so, so we're going to be careful. I guess is the the answer is we're going to be careful about which ones we select. But yeah, we're not at all shy about participating in the uh, OEM side of the market. Uh, but we, but, but coming from the aftermarket, we're also uh, keenly aware of the fact that we're not going to give up our aftermarket <laughs> to participate with an OEM, right? Sure. So, yeah. so when we show up to participate, you know, we're not giving up the ability to sell our spares directly to airlines and MROs and all that. We'll help you solve the OEM problem, but that's you your know, trans routes. Free lunch. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. You don't get a free lunch. <laughs> but but you said just on that point then, so how did Transdime approach PMAs? And I know they kind of they 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 mentioned that in their deck about, you know, it's been it's not it's not been much of a risk to them over the years. Yeah, in their opinion, well, it, it's not. And and honestly, think about a company like Adams Wright. They're a PMA company and an STC company when you get down to it. So most mm-hmm. of the products that Adams Wright makes is either replacing something or it's a solving a problem that didn't ever exist before. Right. So so they already have that DNA. It's part of them. Um, most of the kinds of products they deal with, you know, you talk to their customers, you'll hear people say, oh, I don't like, you know, negotiating with them. They're a little bit prickly or, or, or difficult or they, they, you know, carve out what they want. But when you get down to the things that matter, what we talked about, is the part available? Yes. Does it work? Yes. Does it stay on wing long enough? And does it meet the requirement or beat the other commit? Yes. That's the stuff that we're not going to hear about wanting the PMA, right? So so if, if they're operating the way they should, 
then we don't bump into it, right? So, so that's kind of what you hear in their standard deck, and, and it's it's kind of true because it, if you get back to what David talked about as far as the principle of are you providing value or not? You know, that's that's the real that's the real reason people want to buy a PMA. You know, to to save you know thirty five cents per part to save you know twenty dollars per part to save three hundred dollars per part is not that big a deal in mm. most of what you're dealing with, right? It's really about is it available, is it reliable, and and are you meeting those things?